Good morning, everyone. How are you? Well, I want to talk to you this morning about about having tension in your brain. How many of you argue with yourself sometimes? Be honest. Like, you know, you have this thought of something that you really think you know you're supposed to do. Then there's other thought that says, nah, I'm not going to do that. Not going to work. It's not a good idea. Bad thought. Not, not going to try that. How many of you have done that? Like 10 times every hour. Probably most of us do. I know that idea. Well, that happened to me this morning. It's happened to me throughout my life. And it happens to people who love God all the time. There's this tremendous tension that exists between us doing what we know God wants us to do, but yet coming up with good reasons why the thing that he wants us to do really isn't a good idea. Right? Anybody ever have that dilemma? I mean, I have it almost every day. In fact, it happened to me this morning. I was up early and I went to McDonald's just before sunrise and I'm over there kind of polishing up, moving around some slides, trying to get everything ready for this presentation this morning and and uh, praying and, and sitting there and thinking about the service and all. And then a guy comes up to my window. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't look like he's got, like his hat's turned sideways, gold in his teeth, pants on the ground. He was a white guy, but he kind of looked like a guy, you know, kind of a guy that would be like a gangster, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and he asked me if I have any money. And I've been pastoring in the urban core for about two years of Kansas City. So I generally don't take cash with me. So that I don't lie to people when they ask me if they have money. I say, no, I don't have any money. Uh, then he says, well, can you buy me? He didn't ask me to buy him a Egg McMuffin. He asked me to buy him two Egg McMuffins. He did. That's Tony. I mean, that, that's, that's Paul right there. He said, can you buy me? He didn't say, would you buy me a sandwich? He said, would you buy me two Egg McMuffins? I thought that was rude. I mean, dude, ask me for money. I don't have any money. So then you ask, ask me for one sandwich, not ask me for two sandwiches. And when he said that, I just thought that was just rude, and I wasn't going to get him one. And I looked at him, and I said, no, I'll buy you one Egg McMuffin. If you wait, and I'll go to the drive-thru. So I backed up, and I, and, and, and I started driving towards the drive-thru. And you know what happened when I did that? God started talking to me. Now, you know, when that starts happening, it just messes up everything, Right? Because you had this great plan, I had this great idea, and I'm going to buy a dude one sandwich, and I feel good about myself. But that just was the beginning of this conversation. God just starts messing up my whole agenda in the few minutes it took me to go to the drive-thru, and I got there, and there it was, two for four dollars. I thought that was a sign from God. <laughs> this guy was like, he was a prophet or something. You don't buy one egg McMuffin, you have to buy two, because they're two for four dollars. So I'm sitting there, I'm getting ready to buy two for $4, and I'm feeling much better about myself. Like, God was telling me to go ahead and buy two sandwiches, and I thought that because I saw the sign. But you got to be careful, because all the social structures and all the things that you see, they can influence what you want to do. And sometimes it's really hard to hear what God's saying when all those other things are happening, right? Like when your eyes see the sign that says two for $4, you feel like you're really good to give him two instead of one. Right? That would be our natural thinking. But you got to be careful because I kept listening to God. And God said, don't buy him two, buy four. And I said, God, that's not on the sign. He said, buy four. You get one, he gets three. I said, it's my money. I should get one and three and he should get one. See, all these things, you know what I'm talking about? You know, this tension that happens in your mind when you have these decisions to make every day of your life. And, you know, our tendency is to kind of fault on the side of logic, right? But there's something much more profound and much more powerful than logic. 
And that is truth. Truth is more powerful than logic. And my Bible says that God's word is truth. And he said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, right? So I'm sitting there and I thought, okay, I'll buy four sandwiches. And I thought, that's cool. So I bought the four sandwiches and I'm driving around. This guy was watching the whole transaction. He's sitting at the end of the drive-thru watching me. He saw me hand him the credit card and give give me the credit card back. And he saw him give me this big old bag, not one sandwich like I told him, but a big old bag full of sandwiches. And I'm driving. There he's sitting right there. As soon as I get past the drive-thru, he's sitting right there looking at me. And that's, that's Paul. And uh, he says, uh, he said, did you get me a sandwich? I said, yeah. And then the Lord said this. I want you to track this because sometimes we don't hear God because we think we got things figured out. I thought I had it pretty figured out. I thought if I gave dude three sandwiches and I'm on my way, I'm free to go finish up my sermon and get ready to come preach. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Right. Except God's always talking to us. And so, so I'm getting ready to drive, and, and God says, tell him that if he wants a sandwich, he, will, he has to tell you his story. That's a little pushy, isn't it? I mean, I thought, if I ask him that, dude might just throw the sandwich at me. And say, say if there's strings attached, I'm not interested in the sandwich, thank you very much. I really, that ran through my mind. But I felt like I better do what God said instead of what I thought. So I said, you know what? I've got four sandwiches here, and I said, I'll eat one with you and give you the other two if you'll tell me your story. He said, sure, dude, no man, no problem, dude. He gives me the fist bump. And so I drove around to where that's at. That's on the other side of that McDonald's. And he comes and stands by my door, and we have a conversation for about ten minutes. And I was able to tell him about Jesus. And I was able to give him three sandwiches, and I got a picture of him, a selfie. (laughs) Because, see, I'm not very good at selfies. Can't you tell? I'm like... I haven't learned how to do that yet, but uh, I took a selfie of him, and he said, the first time he did it, he threw a sign, and then he realized I was a Christian, he did this, like he didn't want to throw a sign. I said, no, bro, it's okay, throw your signs, man, it's cool. So I took another picture so he could feel comfortable throwing signs. Well, that's Paul. Well, I didn't, after I left, I've been praying for Paul ever since that moment. And now, to me, that was a really strategic, very important God moment, not just for me. It was good for me because I had to keep pushing back arguments. I had to keep pushing back logic, pushing back what I thought was right. Like, I just, I was afraid if I started talking to him and I started talking to him about Jesus, that he might think there's like some strings attached to the sandwich. Right? And we all know there's no strings attached, attached to God, right? Or, 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 is that, or are there? Now, Jesus said, give a cup of water in my name. And so I, I, I was in tension. I didn't really, I really felt like I was kind of pushing the envelope to talk to him about God. But I felt like God wanted me to. And this guy, man, we're like bros, man. We're like, he was fist pumped like 10 times in that conversation. And when we left, you know, he's like cool. And I go back and I'm parked where the, where the, you know, where the, where the, the um, wireless still worked. I had to get close to McDonald's where the wireless worked because I was still downloading some stuff. And he's over there like, hey, dude, and fist pumping from over there while he's eating his third sandwich, you know. It's like, we're pals. I know where he's at now. But God knows where he's at all the time. I had an encounter with him. I want to tell you why I think that's so important. I think that's so important that we do what God tells us to do because if we don't, I think a lot of people aren't going to make it to the kingdom and they're going to have a miserable life. And I think God wants everybody saved. Do you all believe that? The Bible says it's not his will that any perish. Let's say it again. It's not his will that any. So God, you know what God's vision is? He wants to depopulate hell. He wants every human on the planet in heaven. Amen. You believe that? 
He does. And if he wants everybody on the planet in heaven, the Bible says in John, it says, no one comes to the Father unless my spirit draws them. Right? Y'all know that? Have you read that scripture? So that means if God wants everybody saved, right? He wants everybody in the kingdom. And if his spirit is drawing those who are not in the kingdom, how many of the people in San Diego that don't know Jesus, do you think in this moment God is drawing? How many of them? All of them. Isn't that hopeful? Isn't that like cool? So whenever you meet someone, that's not the first time they thought about God. I mean, I think that's like awesome. Because when I met Paul this morning, I thought, dude, God, he's been thinking about God since he was born. Because God's word says that he's been drawing him and working on him. See, we call that provenient grace in the church. Grace that goes before. That is, before we ever knew God, he was drawing us. That happened to me when I was a young man, when I was out getting high and stoned. Every time I'd walk, drive by a church, the church said, you know, there was this, there was a sign right by a pornography shop in, in, where I lived there. And a big old sign was uh, on pornography and, the, and you know, how you need to come here to shop, the XXX stuff. And then right underneath it, there's a sign that the church put there, pornography destroys. <laughs> that was provenient grace. <laughs> when I read that sign, it made me think about God and it created that tension in my mind. It made me think about that. So what I want to talk to you about today is I want to talk to you about some of the really important things that create tension in our minds as believers. In fact, I want to talk about five myths. Five myths that if we're going to be the kingdom of God and the people of God, we must abolish and destroy these myths. Okay? Everybody with me? So we're going to go to this, and I want to read this scripture with you. So I want everybody to stand and read uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. I'm going to read it fairly slow, and, uh, and then I want you to read it with me, word for word. You ready? Everybody good? I think the word of God, how many think the word of God is powerful? It's powerful. Hebrews says it's, it's sharp and active and it's living. I mean, and it exposes. So that's good if we get the word of God. So let's read it together. You ready? For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Y'all aren't doing very good. Let's, let me hear you now, okay? The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Somebody say amen. amen. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Amen? Thank you. Turn to somebody next to you and say, get those thoughts captive right now. Tell them. Get them captive. All right. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to go on to the slide that has number one on it. So it's like three slides up. There you go. Thank you very much. So I want to address some of these thoughts. You may be seated. I want to address some of these thoughts that you and I all have that really need to be pushed back. That we need to stop allowing society and culture to win these arguments. And we need to let the Word of God win. Amen? Do you believe that scripture that says, let God be true and every man a liar? How many of y'all believe that? In other words, if somebody stands against the Word of God, we need to stand on the Word of God, right? So here's the first one. You ready? I can maintain a productive, overcoming Christian life without a constant, highly intimate prayer life. That's a myth. You see, and most Christians, they live this kind of life. They live defeated, frustrated, powerless lives without any confidence or any surety or any real awareness that they really are who they say they are. In fact, I know a lot of Christians, they aren't really sure that God is who he says he is. They question him all the time. 
Whenever there's a tension time in their life, when they have this conflict of, of, of ideas, they just question, they question the Bible first and they affirm what society says. It happens all the time. And I'm tempted to do that sometimes. When God tells me to do something that's just nuts, that's like crazy, I want to say, God, that's just crazy. Has God ever told you to do something like that? I hope he has. I doubt you've talked to him if he hasn't told you to do something crazy. I'm serious. Don't read the Bible if you don't think God tells you to do crazy stuff. God called a murderer to go deliver his people out of Egypt. Moses was a murderer. He calls him. I mean, you would, why would he call him? I don't know. God's just weird about this stuff. He knows who he wants to use. He uses Moses. Well, it turned out Moses worked out all right for him, didn't he? How about Saul? How many of you would have liked to have Saul come preaching in your church if you knew he was dragging people away to Jerusalem and having them killed and put in prison? Would you want him preaching? No, that would scare you. But that's, it's kind of weird how God knows what's best. Amen? So I want to just remind you that the only way we're going to know what's best is if we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us in prayer. So I want to share a couple thoughts with you about that. The Bible says in Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. If Jesus needed to do that, do you think we do? I'm convinced because I've been around the church. I've pastored for 27 years now. I've been around the church. I'm pastoring right now. I'm convinced that 99% of all the Christians I've ever met almost never pray. And rarely even over a meal. Yet we call ourselves Christians. You know what a Christian is? You know what that word came from? That's somebody that's like Christ. It's really difficult to be like Christ if you hear from everybody but Christ. Did you know that? It's, it's really hard because all the logic and all the insights you get from life tells you that what Jesus is saying is nuts. Like, love those who hate you and do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Come on! Who can do that? You can't do that unless you're around God. It's not possible. How about this one? Paul says, in all things, in all things, give praise. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always? He says, be anxious about nothing. What? Nothing? You've not lived in my life, Paul. It's not possible to not be anxious about nothing. That's a double negative, but it really is. Can you guys identify with that? How is it possible to be anxious about nothing? Is that even conceivable? But this Paul guy says it. And I thought, this guy's just an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I started reading his story. He was in prison for the gospel when he said that. And he wasn't anxious. He was like, chill. In prison for the gospel. And he was telling us not to be anxious. How many of y'all have ever been in prison for the gospel? So, you know, you think maybe getting to work on time when, you're, when your alarm didn't go off, that's anxiety. No, no, no. He's in prison for the gospel and he's able to deal with it. So I'm just saying that the only way you can manage your life and still be a person of God in this world is by being intimate with God. So I'm going to challenge you. Everybody, I challenge you to make a commitment to God, not to me. Make a commitment to God to to spend one hour every week in prayer. That's it. Just an hour a week. You could do it six days a week, ten minutes a day. You could do it 15 minutes a day, like four days a week. You could do it 30 minutes a day. I try to pray an hour a day and maybe about two hours a day. And that's the reason for that is because I'm not very spiritual. <laughs> and I need a lot of prayer. <laughs> I told him in the early services, in order for me to get as much done as your pastor gets done, he could pray 15 minutes. I got to pray two hours because he's that much more gifted than me. So I don't know about you, but I need a lot of God. Amen. And you know what? You need a lot of God. You know what the Bible says? It says, without me, you can do nothing. What that means is without God, you're just sorry. 
You're sorry. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you're just sorry without God. Tell them it's true. It's, you, that's what Jesus said. It's all right. I know it doesn't sound politically correct, but it's what Jesus said. You think Jesus is okay? Go ahead and turn to somebody next to you and say, without God, you're sorry. You really are. But here's what he says. But you can do all things through Christ that gives you strength, right? So that means if you have Christ, you can do all things. So the reason we're not doing much is because we're not just with him very much. Amen? That should be intuitive to us, but it's really not sometimes. Um, I love 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. It says, God forbid that I'd sin against God by failing to pray for you. Prayerlessness is sin. Wow. And not only is prayerlessness sin, but prayerlessness causes more sin. You know why? Because when you're not in prayer and you get in that moment of tension, when you have that decision to make about whether you're doing God's will or not, if you're not really intimate with God, you're probably not going to do his will because it doesn't make sense. Because you've had more influence and more impact and, and, and more, more, more logic from the world than you have from God, and God doesn't make sense. Like when I came to Kansas City. I moved to Kansas City, and they told me I was going to be the director of evangelism for North America, that I'd be traveling 25 days a month. And I'm driving up to Kansas City, and I messed up, and I prayed. Don't do that. I'm, if you start praying, it's going to mess up your life. If you like your life, just don't pray. Well, you could pray, just don't listen. If you, when you pray, if you just talk all the time, then you don't have to worry about God telling you anything. You'll be fine. You just tell him what to do and where to go, and you'll be fine. But if you start listening, it's going to mess up your schedule. So I did. I'm driving to Kansas City, and I'm thinking, I've got a new job. I'm traveling 25 days a month. And the Lord said, you're going to start an inner-city black church. <laughs> I was like Sarah when God told her he was going to have a, she was going to have a baby. I started laughing out loud. And then I rebuked him in the name of Jesus. I said, it's not possible for me to plant a church in Kansas City if I'm only there three to five days a month. You know what God said? This is how prayer helps you. God said, that's why I'm asking you to do it. I'm tired of you doing stuff that you can do. I want you to start doing some stuff that can only happen if I show up. See, that's what prayer does. It just, I'm telling you, it just messes up everything. I challenge you to be people of prayer. If you want to have power, if you want to have confidence in your faith, if you want to see God do miraculous things, get alone with him, and he'll start asking you to do stuff that doesn't make sense but works out pretty good. It's that fuzzy math stuff. And when you get God involved, he just fixes things. Somebody say amen. amen. I'm going to go on to number two and skip that picture. Second myth that needs to be busted. Presence is more important than proclamation. Presence is more important than proclamation. As a young man, I, I was involved with the church a lot as a little boy. Um, I went to VBS as a little boy. I went to Sunday school some as a little boy. I remember the Sunday school campaigns as just a little bitty boy. I remember Mrs. Lloyd that loved on me. I remember every Christmas the church would come and pick up my... I had 12 brothers and sisters. There were 15 of us in one house. 15 people, one house. How you doing? <laughs> 15 people, one house. And both, all of us were by the same two parents. Mom and dad had 13 kids. My mom and dad had 15 pregnancies in 15 years. They had two, two of them they lost. 13, can you imagine? She was pregnant for 15 years. Now, that's a mother that loves her family. I mean, she gave her whole life for us. Funny thing is, my dad never had one kid. He died at 52. My wife, my mom's still alive. She's 87. So having, hey, reproducing makes you healthy, I guess. <laughs> my wife and my mom did good. Well, I'll never forget growing up in my household, going to church as a kid. Every Christmas, the church came by and took us shopping. Thanksgiving, they'd bring us a turkey. They'd do things for us for Easter. I'd, I'd go to church on Easter because they gave fruit and 
candy, and at Christmas they gave fruit and candy. Easter, they gave Easter chocolate, Easter eggs. The only reason I went to church is for the candy. I'm serious. But they loved on me. What I'm trying to say is they were present. The church did presence ministry in my life. But in all those years, not one of those wonderful people in the church ever presented the gospel to me. Not once. See, they thought that presence evangelism was enough. See, I was at Virginia Beach when I was 17 years old, 1976. And I was tripping on a four-way hit of blotter acid, smoking hash and drinking little Rolling Rock pony bottles of beer. I was totally out of my mind stoned. I walked into a boardwalk restaurant to get a sandwich because I had the munchies. And when I walked in to get that, some guy approached me. I had hair down to here. And I ran around most of the time as a kid in the summer with shorts, ponytail, and a tan. And that's what I was wearing when I went into that boardwalk. That was before they had, you had to have shirt shoes to be served. You could just get it served however you wanted to on the beach. And this young man approached me, and he looked at me, and he said, Can I ask you two questions? Well, I was so high, I didn't really care what he asked me. You know, he just, yeah, hey, what do you want, dude? And uh, he said, first question, do you know the Lord? And when he said that, I got so mad, I cussed him out. I said, that's none of your business. I didn't come in here to hear about God. I come in here to get a burger, so get out of my face. And I called him some names. And I turned around to walk off, and this guy, this guy did not know how to do evangelism. This guy, stand up, Pastor, I'll show you. So I began to walk away, and he grabbed my elbow and spun me around like that. You don't do that to people in the inner city. That causes all kinds of problems when you do that. And I was in a gang. I mean, you didn't touch me. You don't lay a hand on a man back in those days. He touched me, and I turned around, and he had some look in his eye that I just couldn't hit him. He said, there was a second question, may I ask you? I said, sure. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, I, <laughs> I just looked too peaceful. He said, the Bible says the gate to hell is very broad, and most people go there. But the gate to heaven is very narrow, and only a few people go there. He said, are you going to be one of the few people that goes to heaven? And when he said that to me, I became extremely angry. I mean, I got angry to the point of wanting to kill the guy. And I cussed him out, and I started to leave the restaurant. I, walked, I forgot the hamburger. I was like the woman at the well. I forgot the water. I turned around. I'm, I'm so mad at him. You know why I was so mad? Because I just spent $36 on that four-way hit of blotter acid. I spent about $20 on that 24-pack of Rolling Rock Pony Bottles. And I spent, I don't know how much money on that hash that I had. And in an instant, when he told me I might be one of the few that doesn't make it to heaven, I was instantly sober. It was like a total buzzkill. That's what the Bible, the Bible just messes up everything. You know, you can go out and love on people, give them hamburgers, and you can give them hams and turkeys and all. But when you start giving them the Bible, it's going to mess them up. I mean, this guy didn't know what he was doing, but he's quoted scripture. You know what happened to me? That scripture started messing with me, and I get in my car, and I got my girlfriend, I put her in the car, and I left the beach at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You don't leave the beach at 1 o'clock in the afternoon unless somebody messed up your day. When I left that restaurant, I turned around and looked at him, and I said, thank you very much, dude, you just ruined my day. Because I was sober, because I just lost like $45 worth of drug stuff, man. I'm sober, and I was mad. I got my girlfriend, I drove home in that 45-minute trip. From Virginia Beach to Williamsburg. You know who was in that car with me? My girlfriend and the Holy Spirit. In those 45 minutes, God broke my heart. You know why he broke my heart? Because the Word of God penetrated into me. And I realized 
I, I may end up going to hell. I don't want to go to hell. And I realized the only reason I was going to hell is because all my friends were doing things that send them to hell. And I was doing what they were doing. And I realized in that moment that there was this tension in my mind between am I going to do what all my friends are going to say or am I going to do what's right and save my own life? I got back home. I knelt and prayed and I accepted Jesus. And the rest is history. Now, here I am preaching. It's the craziest thing what God does. But I just want to tell you, presence and proclamation must always go together. The Word of God changes people. If you don't believe it, there was a text in the early, uh, the, the story of the Samaritan woman. Uh, there are all kinds of scriptures in the Bible that say things like this. They say, how beautiful on the mountaintops are the feet of those that bring the good news. It says, but how will they know unless somebody goes and serves them? Well, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, how will they know unless somebody gives them a burger? It doesn't say that. Doesn't say, how will they know unless you come and make their lives easy? Doesn't say that. It says, how will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone tells them? See, we're, we're really getting good in the church today of figuring out how to not offend anybody. We're good. We never offend anybody. Nobody ever comes to Jesus, but we never offend anybody. See, we figure out the best way not to offend people is just don't tell them about Jesus. But I'm telling you, the Word of God is powerful. It is amazing what it does. I've been around the church all my life. Mrs. Lloyd, I stayed in the home of a Nazarene for three months when my house burnt down. Three months. One of the most godly women I ever met. I I lived in her bedroom. She took me to school. In three months, I was with her. She never once presented the gospel to me or told me that God wanted to change my life. It was only presence. Proclamation happened when I was at the beach. When I was 17 years old, 1976, and that's when my life changed. So I just want to encourage you to understand a myth that needs to be destroyed is presence is more important than proclamation. We must have both presence and proclamation. Somebody say amen. That's good even if you don't like it. Amen. We're going to go to number three. Here's the third myth. You ready? Our job is primarily to build the church. I said that in the last service. And I had a lot of amens because people didn't know where I was going. I want to tell you, God never told us to build the church. He never told you to build the church. In fact, he kind of countered that. In fact, God told Peter, he said, I'll build my church. But throughout the New Testament, through and through, it's just woven through and through the New Testament, he tells us to go make disciples. So your job, here's what I've learned. Every church I've ever pastored has grown. Just like your pastor. Every church I've ever pastored has grown. But I never tried to grow the church. I just got busy making disciples and telling my people to make disciples and telling those people to tell other people to make disciples. When people start making disciples, you don't have to worry about the church growing. If everybody in this room right here, just you, if everybody here decided, I'm going to make a disciple this year. I'm going to ask God to do the one thing that he said I'm supposed to do. Make disciples. Remember when he met Matthew, the tax collector? Remember when he met Peter, James, and John? He said, Follow me, and I will give you a really nice place to worship where your family can have a nice, safe environment, and you can be blessed and joyful and be a big, fat Christian one day. No. He said, follow me, and I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. See, making disciples is what we're supposed to do, but we do everything but that. My prayer for this church, and your pastor's a great leader. He's going to help you through this. He's going to bring trainings, and he's going to help you. See, you know what the crescendo of our faith is? The crescendo of our faith is not getting another Bible study. The crescendo, the apex of our faith, the joy of your faith is not when you're living a holy life. 
The joy of your faith is not to have the most amazing church. The joy of your faith is when you, when you reproduce a new disciple. It's like drugs, man. Once you do it, you gotta have more. And you gotta get more, and you gotta get more. And it just gets overwhelming. It takes over your life. It's, it, you know, what we do in the church is kind of like looking at a 24 year old woman that just got married and saying to her, I want you to have a wonderful family. There's only one caveat. You can't have any children. God has called everybody here, I want to tell you, to be a disciple maker. And your ability to make a disciple, I want you to hear this real carefully, has zero to do with who you are. Has nothing to do with your talents. Has nothing to do with your abilities. It has nothing to do with your personality. Has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. That's what he said in Acts 1.8. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be a really good church person. You'll see power of the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be what? You don't know that scripture? You will be my witnesses. Where? Everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost. Everywhere. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The one thing that Jesus identifies with the coming of the Spirit in Acts 1-8 is to be a witness. We Nazarenes, we wish he said, you receive power of the Holy Spirit, you'll be holy. He doesn't say that. He says that in other scriptures, but in that one... When you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll be a witness. Amen? I want you to turn to somebody and say, you're a witness. Tell them. Would you? See, we believe in that. We believe, you are. Not because you're good at it, but because he's good at it, right? That's why we believe in holiness. We don't think you get holy because you're good at holiness. We think you get holy because he's good at holiness. He comes in and takes over you and he makes you him, right? Do you think he can do that with your personality? Do you think he can do that with your attitude, your disposition? He can do that with this. Amen? Number three, I'm going to skip right over that stuff and we're going to go to number three. I got so much to say and so little time to do it in. I wish I could tell you all these things. Number four, fourth myth. Did I skip one? I got it. Okay, four. Faithfulness is all God requires. I'm going to do this one quickly. Faithfulness is all God requires. You know, in the church, I've been taught this all my life. Mark, if you're just faithful, God's pleased with you. I'm going to tell you about my truck. It's a 2002 Toyota Tacoma pickup. It's beautiful. It's clean. It's nice. It was a one owner. I love this truck. My wife grew up in South Florida. She never saw snow in her life. We moved to Missouri and we got 10 inches of snow. She decided that day she was going to drive in the snow. In my, she didn't take her car. She took my truck. And she smashed it into a tree. Bent the fender, the frame, the fan, everything. Just destroyed it. I poured that little, poor little truck home, put it in my garage. I bought all the parts for it. And it took me two years to put them together. But every morning that I got out of my house, I had to get out of my living room, walk down the stairs, through the garage, right by that truck, into my car and drive to work. For two years, I walked by that truck. That truck was all... If you'd have asked me before I went down those steps one day on the way to work, if you'd have said, is that truck there? I would say, that truck is there. That truck was faithful. It was a faithful truck. But that truck wasn't built to be in the garage. Man, neither were you built to spend your life in the church. You were built to go. You know what Jesus' prayer was? It's one of the few requests Jesus ever made. Here's what he said. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest, catch this, that he would send out workers into his harvest field. He didn't say, pray that workers will come into your church. That's not the scripture. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send workers out. How many of you guys are Christians? Stand up. If you're a Christian this morning, just stand up. If you're a Christian, 
You know what we believe in? We believe in, in Revelation 1.6. It says, To him who loved us and saved us from our sin in his own blood and made us to become a kingdom of priests unto God. If you're a Christian, you're a priest. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, you're, 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 a, you're a minister of God's word. So I want you to turn to somebody next to you and say, You look like a priest. You do. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Thank you. Be seated. We're just about done. And everybody said, amen. 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 So faithfulness is not enough. You cannot define faithfulness in the New Testament without fruitfulness. You know these scriptures. John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How do you show yourself to be his disciple? You bear fruit. He's not talking about love, joy, peace. He's talking about reproducing. The greatest crescendo of every Christian is to make another Christian. Amen? Number five. Here we go. Last one. Our humanistic efforts to communicate the gospel are more effective than God's word and his power. See, I was, I was exposed to that. I had all the efforts. I had a good little church, Newport News Church in the Nazarene. They had church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. They had all that. They brought us turkeys and hams. They loved on us. They cared for us. When my house burnt down, they let me stay in the house of one of their people. But I want you to understand, all those efforts didn't save me. You know what changed my life? The power of God's Word changed my life. That's what did it. And I just want to remind you, don't be afraid to use God's Word. Well, in closing this service, there are a couple of things I'd like for you to think about doing. And I really want to ask the question, do you trust Jesus? Because in those moments, when you have those decisions to make, and God says to do something, but nothing seems like it's logical or right to do it, but you know somehow in your heart God said it, what's going to push you over the edge if you've been in prayer? And what God says is more important to you than what everything around you says. Let me just say this to you. And I want you to say it with me in return. Faith presumes risk. Would you say that with me? Faith presumes risk. See, we want to have a kind of faith that there's no risk in it. See, I promise you, if you do what Jesus tells you, he's going to catch you. So I want to challenge you to do three things in closing this service. First, I'd like for you all to stand. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to leave these things up on the board. I'm going to ask you, rather than us talking, saying them out loud, I'm going to leave them on the board. I'd like to have our praise team come up and begin to play something in the background. We're about done, and you're grateful, and it's time, and past time, and all that. I just want to, my prayer, here's my prayer, as the director of evangelism for North America, you know what my vision is? My vision is that one day every Nazarene, every Christian in our churches will lead someone to Jesus every day, every year of their life. One a year. You know what the tragedy is? I know people have been Christians for 70 years. Hundreds of them. that have never, ever led anybody to Christ. They haven't experienced the crescendo of their faith. It's like having a Corvette, a brand new Corvette in your garage, and you never drive it. I believe that God will give you all that you need for life and godliness. That's what the scripture says. So I'd like for you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you a question. You can begin to play. If you have a keyboardist, that'd be great. No one looking around. I just want to ask you, how many of you would say, Brother Mark, I'm pretty certain that I'm not doing enough to help pre-Christians come to Christ. Do you have enough courage to raise your hand and admit that? All over the place. Just raise. I want to know who you are. I know that I'm probably not doing enough for pre-Christians to come to Christ. I'm kind of living a selfish life. I kind of, I don't talk to people. I don't think it's important. I don't think it's going to matter. I, I'm afraid. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to lose my reputation or my image will be shattered. Raise your hand high. I, I'm probably not doing enough for people that don't know Jesus. You really mean it. 
I'm going to ask you to do a really huge thing now. In a moment, the praise team is going to sing and we're about done. I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. If you did admit today that I'm not doing enough for people that don't know Jesus and you'd like for God to help you, if you're willing to commit, God, if you'll help me, give me some tools, give me some inspiration, give me some courage, I'll do more for people that don't know Jesus. How many of you would say, I'll do that if God would help me? Raise your hand. I'll do it if God would help me. Next step. Do you have enough courage if you raised your hand to come down here to these altars and just kneel and ask God that simple question? Just this morning, that simple question. God, that's right, just come. If you're willing to say, God, if you'll give me some tools and you'll give me some resources and you'll give me some courage, I need to do more for people that don't know you. And I'll do it if you'll just help me. I'll do it if you'll just help me. There's nothing that blesses the heart of God more. My prayer is that you will experience the crescendo, the apex of your faith, to lead someone to Jesus. If you've never done it before in your life, you'll think, you'll think you had the highest high you've ever been on in your life. I'm going to ask you that are seated in the, in the seats to go ahead and have a seat. And I'm going to ask you that are at the altars and those in your seats to pray this simple prayer. God, give me the courage. Give me the insight to know it's you. And give me the words. And take me to the places where I can do a better job of telling people about Jesus. If you'd lead us in singing, and I'll ask the pastor to come and close in prayer when he's done.